Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. This week we have part one of Dead Ball, a new pulp tale from Jonathan W. Sweet, included in the new book from Brick Pickle Media, Enter the Jackal. It's 1933 in the Twin Cities. Minnesota's largest cities are beset by corruption and organized crime has free reign. Average citizens know the justice system is weighted against them as the Great Depression sinks many into poverty and despair. Enter the Red Jackal, a vigilante shaped by the powers of ancient Egypt, a crime fighter who will defend the powerless and terrify the guilty. Enter the Jackal is already generating multiple positive reviews and is available from Amazon or other bookstores. You can also order signed copies at a discounted price directly from BrickPickleMedia.com, and that direct link is in the show notes. And listeners of the podcast can receive an additional discount, getting the book for only $10 by using code PODCAST at checkout on our website. The Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2021. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.brickpicklemedia.com. You can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And remember, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And with that, on with the show. Dead Ball by Jonathan W. Sweet. The Red Jacko takes on Death on the Diamond. One. All he'd wanted was to have a little fun, a night out before starting a new job. Oh God, why had he gone to the... Slap! His train of thought was interrupted by the blow to his face. He's all yours, Coop. The gorilla of a man in front of him says he stepped out of the way. Now we're going to try this again the one they called Coop, said. Why were you at the Pines? And what were you doing listening to our little talk? I I didn't hear a thing. I I was just looking to relax. The bartender told me it was a great place to get a few drinks and meet some girls. That's all I wanted, I swear. Now see, I just don't believe you. Fred? This time it was a punch to the stomach that doubled the man over, causing him to throw up those drinks he had so eagerly anticipated. A look of disgust crossed Coop's face as he moved back toward the prisoner. One more time. I'm losing my patience. What did you hear? The man flinched and struggled to catch his breath. Okay, okay. I heard you, but I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who you are. I don't know who the Sullivan is. It means nothing to me, I swear. Coop nodded to Fred, who slipped out of the room. Coop would have been able to handle this ruby if he hadn't been tied up. He could have left this to the boys, but sometimes you just have to take care of problems yourself. A good leader knows when to delegate and when to get hands-on, he thought to himself. He turned back to the bound man. Now see, that's much better. Relax, we're almost done here. He leaned in toward the man with a sinister smile that did nothing to improve his looks. It was easy to see why he was known in the underworld as simply creepy. Just one question left. Did you tell anyone about what you heard? One of the waitresses, maybe? A fellow gambler? A friendly girl at the bar? No, no, nobody knows. I won't tell a soul. I swear, you've got to believe me. Oh, I believe you, Coop said, nodding again to Fred, who had returned to the small room. Thank you, thank you, thank you, the man repeated as he looked up, only to notice what was in Fred's hand as he stepped out of the shadows. 
Looking down the barrel, he only had time to start a short prayer before everything went black. Two. Twelve hours earlier. Strike two! Ham briefly turned and glared at the umpire that had called the nasty curveball a strike before turning his attention back to the pitcher. The southpaw on the mound wiped the sweat off his forehead, checked the runner at first, and hurled a rocket of a fastball to the plate. Ham swung what was well behind the pitch as he heard it hit the catcher's glove. Strike three! You're out! A few boos rang down from the stands as the home team went down to defeat, but not many fans had bothered to stay until the end of the 9-0 loss. The chilly, overcast May Day had kept even most of the hardy baseball fans away from Lexington Park for that day's exhibition game. Two who had ventured out were now standing behind home plate. The two, while both bundled up, seemed a mismatched pair. One stood over six feet tall with handsome movie star looks that served him well in the Minneapolis social scene. The other was almost as wide as he was tall, barely topping five feet and tipping the scales well north of 200 pounds. What did I tell you? This boy is something special, the shorter said, gesturing at the pitcher who was making his way in the direction. Heck of a game, Josh, he said, now turning his attention to the pitcher. Twelve strikeouts, three hits? That's why you're going to be a star. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Moore. I've been better. I always pitch better when it gets warmer. It'll be plenty hot before you know it. This here is Mr. Blake Randolph, he said, indicating the other man. He's from Brickton, just west of here. He owns the paper and radio station there. He's going to be one of the investors in the new team. I'm thinking about it, Rob, Randolph interrupted. I'm still not sure about putting a professional baseball team up on the iron range. I'm not sure about investing in any new business in this economy. I'm not worried, Moore said. Roosevelt's only been in office a couple of months and things are already getting better. This depression's going to be over in a year. When that happens, the resorts are going to start booming again. Moore was the owner of the Vermilion Bay Resort on northern Minnesota's Lake Ludlow. Considered one of the finest walleye lakes in the state, if not the country. He'd also been a standout catcher, even playing a couple of years of professional ball. That was what had brought the New York native to Minnesota, where he played for the Virginia Ore Diggers of the state's Northern League. When the team folded in 1916, he stayed on the Iron Range. Before the Depression, he personally funded a rail line extension directly to his resort, an investment that almost sank his fortunes after the stock market crash. His latest idea to drive business to his lakeside resort was to host a baseball team on the grounds. Josh, why don't you go ahead and go? I have some more I need to talk to Mr. Randolph about. The car is waiting to take you back to the Hopkins, Moore said, referring to the hotel the pitcher was using as a temporary home. We've got breakfast at 8 tomorrow morning with Senator Charles, so keep the rabble-rousing to a minimum. Uh, Yes, sir. See you tomorrow. Where you been hiding him? Randolph asked after Josh moved out of earshot. He was playing town ball in Le His older sister is the hostess at a restaurant and told me about him when I started talking about the baseball team. I checked him out last fall and liked what I saw. A note of desperation crept into Moore's voice. I I need this, Blake. Everybody loves baseball. Even if it doesn't bring in the tourists, the locals will turn out. Cheap entertainment is important these days, and we don't have a lot of other options up there. Josh is an important part of those plans. You saw how good he is as a hitter and a pitcher. I've got him signed for this year, and that's probably all I'm going to get. As soon as word gets out about this kid, somebody's going to scoop him up. You know, I've seen them all. Gehrig, Hornsby, Walter Johnson. He's right up there. Randolph hated to see anyone in trouble. Too many of his friends had been laid low by this damn depression. He sure hoped Rob was right and Roosevelt could get things running again. It got ugly out there. 
Luckily, the Randolph family had thus far weathered the depression better than most. That put them in a position to help those less fortunate, and the family had donated thousands of dollars to help fill food banks and fund other relief efforts. At the same time, it made him an obvious source of funding for anyone in trouble, a fact that was putting plenty of strain on his friendships with other businessmen. His unwillingness to help everyone that asked for it had already ended a few relationships. More could sense his indecision. Tell you what, Blake, the rest of the team is already up at the Vermilion. I'm taking Josh on the train tomorrow afternoon, the 130 out of Union Depot. Come with us, check out the field, see the team. You'll be impressed. Rob was different than those minor acquaintances who had put the touch on him. Although he was eight years Blake's senior, they had served together in France during the Great War. That bond was one that was hard to ignore, and Randolph knew he would do whatever he could to get Rob through this mess. I'll come up, Rob. But on one condition, I'm paying my own way. Besides, I don't want people to see me as such an unsavory individual as a baseball owner. You know, all that spitting and scratching and such really won't help my reputation, he said with a wide grin. Ah, very funny. But fine. Why don't you meet us at Union Depot tomorrow afternoon? The one thirty. don't forget. And Blake, thank you. I mean it. All right. Don't expect me to hug you or anything. I'll see you tomorrow. Three. At 10 a.m. the next morning, Blake was in one of his favorite spots, looking out at the newsroom from his glass office. For years, Blake had started almost every day at the Brickton Gazette. Of all the Randolph family businesses, it had always been his favorite. Although the radio station he had started a few years ago was giving it a run for its money. He had just settled into his office at the Gazette when a star reporter, Jennifer Jones, rushed in. Chief, she started, needling him with her usual sarcastic greeting. He had known the 28-year-old reporter for almost her entire life as the younger sister of his best childhood friend. Blake and Eddie Jones had signed up to fight the Kaiser together, but only Blake had returned from France. Their long history, along with her girl-next-door looks, led some to question her abilities, but anyone who followed her reporting soon learned she served her role as the paper's top news hound. Is this about the Red Jackal? He asked, preparing himself for the usual discussion. Let me guess. He was spotted again last night. With Paul Bunyan and Buck Rogers? A dark look crossed the reporter's face, a look that Blake knew all too well. Laugh all you want, but the Red Jackal is real. I was talking to Willie Olson last night, and he said the Red Jackal just broke up that bank robbery two nights ago at the First National. What are you doing spending time with that weasel? Olson's a degenerate gambler and a creep of the highest caliber. What's the matter, Chief? Jealous? Jennifer replied with a mischievous grin. That has nothing to do... Now listen, well... The point is, you cannot believe a thing he says. To the usually self-composed Blake's occasional frustration, only Jennifer could leave him this flustered. Jennifer's smile broadened as she continued. He's not the only one. You know that. The rumors are everywhere. When are you going to let me write about this? Every criminal in Brickton is talking about him. As a journalist, Blake was aware he was walking a fine line. He'd never before encouraged a reporter to drop a story that he believed in. But he also knew the Red Jackal survived best as a rumor. Let criminals fear the unknown. Let them think they might just be a figment of their imaginations. And he couldn't exactly ask for help with the ethical quandary. Perhaps he could write a letter to editor and publisher. Dear sirs, I am a newspaper publisher, but also a crusading crime fighter who wants to preserve his secret identity. How do I balance the two? The thought made him smile slightly, an expression that the fiery reporter mistook as aimed at her. I know, I know, Blake said, raising his hands as he sought to preemptively calm his top scribe. Listen, find me proof. 
Get me evidence this guy exists, even a reliable eyewitness. Then we can talk, but I'm not publishing anything based on hearsay from crooks and mobsters. And be careful who you have dinner with. Jennifer's mischievous grin returned. I'm going to find it, Chief. Don't you worry. And if you're so worried about my dinner companions... Jennifer was cut off his cape. Blake's gray-haired, long-time assistant leaned in the office door. You have a call, Mr. Randolph. It's Mr. Moore. He said it's an emergency. Thanks, Kate. I'll take it in here. Hmm. Saved by the bell, I guess. Jennifer said with a sarcastic frown, immediately regretting her words when she saw the look on Blake's face. All right, all right. Wait, Rob. Slow down. You're, you're not making any sense. How did... All right, I'm coming down now. Blake, what is it? The concerned reporter asked, putting her hand on Blake's arm. Blake was already heading out the door as he answered. That was Rob Moore. His star pitcher is dead. Four, that evening. You will be blessed. And you will be cursed. But you will live. It had been nearly a decade since Blake had heard those words, and he still wasn't sure it was worth the trade-off. True, nobody else had survived the expedition, but at what cost? What had he given up for this cursed blessing? Motion near the entrance of the alley shook him out of his reverie. Focus on the task at hand. After meeting Moore at his office, it hadn't taken long to fill in the gaps. The Vermilion Bay Resort star pitcher went out looking for some fun and got himself killed. The body, stripped of money and valuables, had been found in this alley near the Hopkins. The police had dismissed it as a robbery, just another rube who didn't know better than to watch himself in the city. The bartender at the Hopkins, a recent hire by the name of Tim O'Rourke, said that Josh had been buying drinks for the crowd in the hotel bar and generally flashing his newfound wealth. The assumption was that someone had decided to lure him out to the alley and take that money for himself. Then, the theory went, the intoxicated man decided to fight to keep his cash and came out on the losing end of a gunshot. It was a nice, clean package tied up with a ribbon for the local police. Still, there had been no blood, no evidence to suggest he had been killed here. A fact conveniently ignored by the investigating officers. New, reform-minded police officers and leadership were trying to clean up decades of corruption in the city, but much of the police force was still willing to take a payoff in the right situation. Blake's intuition, superhuman since that night in Egypt, told him it was worth coming back to the scene. It seemed that informed Hunch had been right. The setting sun had left the alley mostly in shadow, but he had no trouble making a figure slinking down the alley. The red jackal leapt from his perch atop the fire escape and landed behind the presumably homeless man, cutting off any avenue of egress. What? The man squealed in fear. Be calm, friend. The innocent have nothing to fear from the red jackal. He said, looking the man square in his eyes. Nothing to fear, the vagrant whispered, mostly to himself. You were here last night. When the young man's body was left in this alley, what did you see? The man answered in a monotone. Two men dragged him in here. I, I thought it was one of the hotel digs coming to kick me out again. They, they don't like when I come back here, but there's good eats coming out the back door there. So, so I got myself down behind those boxes, he said, gesturing at a pile of six or seven broken wooden crates at the end of the alley. Did you recognize the men? Did they say anything? Ne- never saw them before, 
but but they said Creepy wanted them to make it look like someone robbed him for his role. The jackal grimaced at the comment. I knew there was more to this than that bartender said. Cooper, that animal is a scourge this entire community. Harry Creepy Cooper, so dubbed because of his sinister smile, was the leader of the infamous Cooper gang. Known as Coop to his gang members, Cooper had led the group on a rampage across the Midwest, including bank robberies, murders, and more. Whenever the heat elsewhere got to be too much, Cooper and his gang hid out in St. Paul, thanks to a police force that was all too happy to look the other way. If Creepy was involved in this, then Josh had stumbled into something huge. He knew where he had to head next. The jackal turned his attention back to the helpful tramp. Take this, my good man, he said, handing the man five dollars. Get yourself a warm bed and a meal. It's going to be chilly tonight. The jackal disappeared in a flash of red motion before the man could even acknowledge the gift. Within seconds, his memory of the red jackal was fading, even as the words, warm bed, warm meal, continued to repeat themselves in his mind. Five. Within minutes, the red jackal had shed his outfit and transformed himself once again, using one of the many hideaways he kept for just such an occasion. Dressed smartly for an evening out on the town, Blake headed back to the Hopkins, this time through the front door. He had taken the precaution of putting some gray in his hair and adding a mustache that should help keep anyone from recognizing him. Although previously a patron of the Hopkins, his plan called for passing himself off as an out-of-town hood. It wouldn't do for a casual acquaintance to scotch his efforts. As Blake entered the bar, he made a note of the sparse crowd. One couple was whispering sweet nothings to each other in a table in the back corner, mostly hidden by shadows. At the bar, two other men sat, separated by three stools. The word of the murder seemed to have thinned out the crowd, with nobody eager to wind up as the next victim. Blake picked a seat at the other end of the bar and motioned to the barkeep. Scotch! The bartender nodded and reached under the counter. When he brought the drink over, Blake grabbed his arm, holding an iron grip. Creepy wants to know what you were pulling with the cops today, O'Rourke said in a voice too low for any of the other patrons to hear. A look of fear flashed across the barman's craggy face, confirming Blake's suspicion that he knew more than he had told the police that morning. I didn't say nothing but what those boys told me. Just said he was flashing his money around. Blake pulled on the old man's arm, almost dragging him across the counter before offering a harsh whisper in his face. That's not what we heard. The Flatfoots told us you couldn't stop singing once they put a little pressure on you. No, no! The bartender practically whimpered. They, they let it go, hardly any questions. I didn't say nothing about the pines. The pines, of course, Blake said under his breath while releasing the man's arm. We're better for a visitor with a wad of money to go wasted. A suspicious look crept into the barman's face at that comment. Hey, how come I've never seen you at the crew before? What's your name? You can call me Elliot Ness, Blake answered with a smile. And I never said I worked for Cooper. With space between them, the old man was now trying to regain a modicum of courage. You won't get away with this. I, I don't know who you are, but Coop will take care of you. Blake chuckled and turned serious as he responded. Sure, buddy. You want to know who I am? I'm a treasure agent, friend. So why don't you call Creepy up and tell him you just spilled your guts to a G-man? He gave the barman his best predatory smile. With that, he slid off the stool and made his way to the bar's exit. He glanced back at the barkeep as he strode out the door, feeling a little sorry about the look of dawning terror on the man's face. But just a little. 
6. The Pines The sprawling mansion was a frequent destination for Cooper and his gang whenever they were in town. The three-story home on the edge of St. Paul was a notorious gang-lang hangout. Gangsters and local high society rubbed elbows at its bars and gambling tables. Regular payoffs to St. Paul's police force made sure the illegal casino operation stayed up and running. Ben Weaver, a bellhop-turned-underworld banker, ran the joint. The diminutive Minnesota native had made a successful business out of not only entertaining criminals both local and foreign, but also providing alibis for any hooligan that needed them, for a healthy fee. Weaver was an expert at keeping his mouth shut. Blake knew he wasn't likely to share any information about whatever had prompted the need to eliminate Josh, even if the jackal entered the picture. He wasn't cowardly enough to be tricked and intimidated like the bartender, or pliable enough to influence like the tramp outside the Hopkins. But every criminal operation has those people who just can't keep their mouths shut. Which is why he was waiting outside this rundown tenement on the city's south side shortly before midnight. The doorway of the adjacent, boarded-up pharmacy made a convenient observation post. The front door opened and a small, hunched-over man scurried out. Dan Finley, or Weasel Dan as he was known to most in the Twin Cities criminal class, moved his eyes from side to side as expecting to be attacked at any moment. One look at the miscreant made clear to the observer how he got his nickname. I do have to deal with the worst people, the jackal thought as he stepped out of the doorway of the abandoned building. Good evening, Dan. Oh God, you scared the hell out of me! Can't you just walk up to a person like a normal guy? Finley had been a not always willing member of the Jackal's network of informants for the last three years, ever since the vigilante had extracted him from a sticky situation involving some missing Canadian whiskey in Al Capone's operation. Apparently, Chicago gangsters don't take kindly to leaving high-quality liquor replaced with turpentine. Luckily for Finley, no one who knew about his switcheroo had survived the misunderstanding. After his failed attempt to strike it rich on his own, Finley had returned to his duties as a blackjack dealer at the Pines. Those duties let him listen in on plenty of conversations that proved interesting to the jackal. We need to talk about your employer. You need to do some digging for me. Finley kept walking down the quiet street. Uh-uh, now's not the best time. Everyone's really jumpy over there. Something's going on. The jackal sighed. I know something's going on, Dan. That's why I need you to find out what it is. It's sort of what an informant does. Quiet! Nobody needs to hear that. The jackal gestured at the surrounding street and buildings. Dan, who is going to hear? Half the buildings on the street are empty. And anyone else who lives here is just a good, hard-working citizen trying to make it through the Depression. You are the only deviant out this late. And I can assure you there is nobody around. Enhanced senses and, and all that, the jackal added while gesturing at his head. But if you're that worried... Why don't you just step into this lovely vestibule, he said, indicating the door of another abandoned building. Finley stopped with an exasperated grunt. Fine, but make it quick. I start at 12. Last night. I was off last night. Yes, Dan, I know. More listening, less talking, you can get on your way. I need you to find out about a kid named Josh Jacobson. At some point last night, he made it over to the Pines. Then somehow managed to end up dead in an alley next to the Hopkins Hotel. He was a ball player, just got a big signing bonus to play for a team up north, and was probably spreading money around at the tables. Uh, not to point out the obvious, but our average customer is not exactly an upstanding member of society. 
Somebody probably saw all that money and figured they bushwhacked the kid. No. There's something more going on here than a simple robbery. Creepy is involved. Finley's eyes opened wide. You couldn't lead with that nugget? That guy's a nut job. If he's involved, it could be just about anything. The jackal nodded. I know. That's why you make the big money for all the answers. Wait, you don't pay me. Call in at 10. Find out what this kid stumbled into. As if he had just conjured it out of thin air, a black, heavily modified Packard appeared out of the darkness, running with no lights on. Within seconds, the jackal had leapt into the back seat, and the vehicle vanished back into the gloom. God, I hate when he does that, Finley said as he resumed making his way down the street. And that's all for this week's episode. Thanks for listening today. Next week, we'll be back with part two of Dead Ball, the conclusion of the story. And remember, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Your reviews help other listeners find us and grow the podcast. Thanks and have a great week.